Hello, I'm Brett Bradigan, editor of Ojai Quarterly, with the newest episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. John Brazenly, retired history professor from Cal State Northridge, was often named the most popular teacher on campus because of his deep knowledge and caring stewardship of his students. He brought those same attitudes to Ojai more than four decades ago, where his lifelong environmental passion led him to lead and found two key community institutions, the Ojai Valley Land Conservancy and the Ojai Valley Defense Fund. Ladies and gentlemen, John Brazenly. Brett, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I figured I'd call to check in about the new project. You've got, you just published the Ojai Valley Defense Fund's photo book and with essays, and it's very beautiful. I was over at uh, Porch Gallery and got a chance to flip through it. I haven't bought my copy yet, but I'm, I will definitely get it. I know just where I'm going to put it in my office. So can you tell me a little about that and what, why and, and what, what you hope for it? Well, with pleasure, this um, was our daughter Carolyn's idea. She had an epiphany. Um, oh, sometime uh, last fall that perhaps the time had come for a new book of photographs of the Ohio Valley that depicted the valley as it is today. Uh, we're two decades on into the 21st century. And um, that we should capture the way we are now. Um, to use an old-fashioned term in a snapshot. Yeah. And then we began to talk about, well, how do we go about this? Neither of her, uh, neither she nor I had ever worked on a book of photographs before. And one thing led to another. And uh, 15 of the, the Valley's most prominent and most gifted photographers uh, came onto the project with us. Not one declined an invitation. And those that we invited <clears throat> were um, those who had gotten the Ohio Valley Defense Fund to where it is now after 10 years. And that was another motivation that the Defense Fund was observing its 10th anniversary. Uh, and it might also uh, be a, a very nice landmark of that. And for all of those who supported it along the way, these photographers whom we invited uh, and a few more that they led us to of like mind, nature photographers and yeah i saw my friend uh, logan hall in there that was really nice now did they well, uh, logan has been terrific yeah, did they misty has oh, been my terrific goodness, yeah i adore adore both of them now did um they go out and take new photos or is this photos they'd already taken of recent vintage to get a you know sense of the seasons and uh everything else Great question. What we did was simply to ask each of these photographers to provide us with the 20 images they'd taken of the greater Ojai Valley that they felt proudest of. And that was the overture. That's how it began. And we were stunned. I mean, we were overwhelmed by the caliber of the work we were receiving. We, we knew their work was wonderful. But in the fullness of it, uh, we felt overwhelmed. And that then, of course, put the burden on us to try to live up to what we'd received from them as we edited. Sure. Um, 
the book fell into natural parts uh, on the basis of what was submitted. In other words, the sections just fell out almost automatically. Um, even though the photographers were concentrating on very different things, they have each individual eye and individual gifts. There were some places where we wanted more. For example, we asked Logan to do a rendering of what the Ohio Meadows Preserve might look like as a freeway off-ramp site, which was slated 50 years ago as a possibility. Um, so Logan's rendering of that, as it might have looked today, was requested. Uh, his images of uh, Weldon Canyon Road were also requested. Yeah, the last Misty's. Yeah, Misty's of Julie Tumamite. Uh, was a photograph that took a tremendous amount of work getting their schedules together and Julie out on the Ventura River. And then her words accompany that photograph. Um, and her words stunned us. I mean, what she sent back, many of the words in the book um, were unexpectedly powerful from living people and then we melded those with words from people long gone, and particularly Judah Krishnamurti. His voice provides one of the themes of the book. Yes. Well, I, I'm always struck by the, one of his quotes, were I to be anywhere in an orange tree in Ohio in the sunshine and <laughs> nourished by the fruit, something to that effect. Yes, and I recall like a, like a, an idol, a dream to be and have the above. Yes, wouldn't be all. all around you. It's just yeah. Many people have felt that for generations. Yeah. So um, what's uh? was the next step there once you sort of got a rough shape and did you ever feel like you were over your head? <laughs> well, we were certainly out of our uh, comfort zone. Uh, I'd written before, but nothing, nothing ever remotely like this. And so as a consequence, we were, we were yeah. called upon to create, both the work that would honor each of the individual images that we chose to include as editors, and also a work of art as a whole, bringing them all together, and then with the words. And that's where Heather Stobo and Lisa Cassoni came in from Porch Gallery as our artistic editors and were just invaluable. So what do you miss most about the classroom? I miss the uh, just the liveliness of it, the students, the, the human connection. Um, young people are tremendously exciting. I, I miss the give and take. I miss the action and the excitement, um, not just in the classroom, uh, but also in my office. I mean, a lot of my former students going back 50 years ago remarked that uh, a great part of the, of the value of their time with me uh, assuming there was value in their time with me, came from being in the office and seeing how to debate, how to disagree, how to discuss, and how to interact with other people um, 
wrestling with issues, large and small. Yeah. Um, so all of that is tremendously important. What I do not miss is academic bureaucracy, which is terribly sluggish, slow moving and tedious. And then they uh, tend to, to magnify uh, mountains. I've, I've heard, 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 heard tell. <laughs> the old, the old, the old aphorism is that the the fights are so hot because the stakes are so low. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now, if you were to, we're in a parlous time. It sure feels like it. Pandemic, politics, everything swirling around us. It's hard for us to pull back and get some perspective. But if you were, what would you be looking at or, or steer people towards to help them wrap their minds around the present moment? Well, in terms of this planet and COVID, um, which is beset the whole planet, I would take them back to the flu pandemic of 1918 to 20, and then to earlier pandemics, such as the one uh, in the time of Boccaccio, and all the way back to the Roman Empire, and uh, presumably back into unrecorded history. Uh, those are analogous and useful. And when this one broke, I began to study the uh, pandemic of 100 years ago. In terms of our current political situation, um, in terms of the fractiousness and divisiveness in this society, uh, the closest parallel that I uh, could bring up would be the pre-Civil War period, the 1850s. Uh, and I think in many ways we're reflective of that era. The country's been divided uh, before and since. Uh, I mean, it was divided in its early national phase. It was divided bitterly uh, in the Gilded Age. It was divided bitterly 50 years ago in the Vietnam Watergate era. But we're more bitterly uh, fractious and bifurcated now than at any time since before the Civil War. Yeah, I blame uh, the internet, I blame the social media structure for how it, uh, and it amplifies the worst of us and uh, lack of accountability for the comments and so forth. It just creates this this climate and, uh, you know, there's plenty of good to go along with it. And I think we'll we'll figure it out. Um, I'm not as worried as a lot of people I hear as far as, you know, the second civil war and so forth, because we've been, I think 1968, for example, you know, Martin Luther King murdered Robert F. Kennedy shortly thereafter. It felt like the dreams of a generation died and we got through it. We got, we got through, through that era and into, you know, the next new mess waiting around the bend. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's, I think our democracy is being stress tested. And I like to go back to, you know, the reconstruction period, how hopeful everything was. Uh, the South had figured out that, you know, uh, they were vanquished, but, you know, no defeat is ever final. And that election of 1876, I find fascinating with Samuel Tilden as a Democrat and Rutherford B. Hayes, the, uh, was he governor of Ohio? He was a general, yeah. brigadier general in the Civil War. And it was, you know, Hayes won the popular vote, or I'm sorry, Tilden won the popular vote. 
but he came up short because of a bunch of irregularities over whatever it was, Florida, Louisiana, some of these Southern states under reconstruction and the vote had been greatly suppressed the black vote especially so the republicans democrats didn't really know what was going on so then you know it got kicked into the house of representatives because we couldn't get a clear winner uh tilden had 200 and well it wasn't 269 then but he was one vote short of of winning which meant that hayes had to run the table of the two or three or four uh, states but hadn't had their their votes resolved. And it just feels like we're setting ourselves up for something similar now because we're not going to know on election day who won. Not with the mail-in ballots, not with uh, the closeness of the election, and not with the amount of lawyers that are stacked up on, on either side. It's going to be it's going to be very similar to that situation. I, I sense and i fear so i don't know can you speak to that oh, I, I think you're right I, I think that uh they at that point were struggling to resolve the issue of the disputed <clears throat> electoral votes in the four states um in time for inauguration day and we're going to be facing something very similar i think um a president is inaugurated on inauguration day which is now January 20th, and uh, prior to the 1930s, it was March 4th. And uh, that is mandatory. So we're not sure where we're going here. They weren't then either. Once again, there's an analogy. They were in uncharted territory. We're in uncharted territory, except by way of that analogy. And there's another one, of course, too, and that is that uh, twice this century, and uh, also, on prior occasions, we've put in the White House a person who received a minority of the popular vote, and that was the case with Hayes, uh, who was referred to as your fraudulency on occasion. Yeah. <laughs> he was a good man, but uh, they played bare-knuckle politics, and that was characteristic of that era. I mean, one thing that, that historians know about the Gilded Age, uh, and I've done some work on this, a bit of work myself, um, is that as, as parties bifurcate, as things become closer and closer, and those elections, those presidential elections were resolved by tiny, tiny margins uh, in the 1870s, 1880s. Um, yeah, early, Grover Cleveland won three popular votes in a row. Yeah. I just I don't remember where I yes. learned that, but he won two non-consecutive elections, but he actually won the popular vote three Three eighty, eighty four, eighty eight, and ninety two. That's right, and so so here so we are. That was very closely fought. Yeah, here we are again. Very strange uh, with the current incumbent and with George uh, W. Bush. So uh, again, we've trod these paths before. As as parties are very close in power, and are contending furiously uh, to control Congress and the presidency. The heat of politics that generates out of that furnace grows. When parties aren't close, uh, the tensions relax because things are half resolved in that the, the party that is the moon to the other party's earth, the party that's the moon isn't going to be in control of things with any frequency. 
But it's when either party can take control. And when they're fighting over both houses, they're fighting over state governorships and legislatures, they're fighting up and down, that you get this kind of uh, ferocity that we're seeing now and have since really the mid-1990s and that we saw in the late 19th century. And then the fever tends to break, to use Barack Obama's term. But as you pointed out, it will resolve, but you have to wait for it. And uh, in the middle of it, you can't imagine it ever resolving. These things do resolve, uh, but it's very difficult to project exactly how or exactly when. Yeah, I, I just sense that there's uh, that Trump will declare himself the winner on election day, and then fight as hard as he can with plenty of legal ammunition. Every contested uh battleground state but even so every you know like bucks county or what's that place in michigan that they always use as the as the uh switch county the muskegon or i forget which one it goes back and forth from one election to another but that's sort of uh close fought narrowly um but i'm hoping that if it shows that, say, just for example, Biden won, you know, a certain cluster of suburban counties around Philadelphia or Pittsburgh by a greater margin than did Hillary, and you can see the pattern there, then it would make it very difficult for Trump or any of his minions to go in and dispute the election if there's a clear pattern. Yes. Well, it's an interesting point you raise. Um, <clears throat> one of the things we find is that when one party or the other party seeks to suppress the vote, to deter people from voting or to question the validity of their ballots, that party sees its own future in trouble. That is, it's, it's very doubtful about where its own future leverage is coming from. And the interesting thing about uh, the situation over the last 150 years is this describes the GOP now, but it described the Democratic Party in the late 19th century. Yeah. If you look at an electoral map, you'll see a complete shift from blue to red. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a whole different political alignment, which was all due to civil rights and voting, voting rights and just uh, the party in power clinging desperately and mostly through keeping people away from the polls, not encouraging people to get out to the polls. One of the things that I... I just... Go ahead, Brad. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that suppressing, suppressing the vote just doesn't seem very American. The franchise is sacred. It is. But, but uh, at various points, both parties have been tempted to violate that dictum. Uh, it's it's hard to imagine the Democratic Party of today in terms of what it was in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. And as you say, the civil rights movement and the battle over the civil rights acts of, <clears throat> acts of 64, 65, and 68 changed things dramatically. But I would argue that uh, the beginnings of that change go back even farther um, in the 20th century, I, one of the first things I, I uh, worked on in my career 
was a study of segregation of the federal government under Woodrow Wilson. Now, Wilson was a Democrat, he was a yeah. Southern Democrat. But, uh, I mean, it's something you, you almost feel as though you need to bathe after, after uh, reading today. And oh, I was, my goodness, yeah. I was going through... It's like, uh, it's just awful. The screening birth of a nation and the White House and that... And Wilson, one of his first books, he was a scholar, was of some lost cause uh, narrative. And he was very big proponent of, you know, the restoring the South. He was. He, uh, to its he, rightful he, place. He wrote a history of the United States in which he made that very argument before he became president. But so that when, when the next, the next uh, round of this change comes along, uh, it's with Al Smith in the presidential campaign of 1928, first Catholic to run on a major party ticket for president. And that caused the South to shudder. He was a white Catholic from New York. He wasn't black, but that caused shuddering in the South. And then FDR comes in in 1933, following the 1932 election, blacks don't vote for Roosevelt. They're scared to death of the Democratic Party. But Roosevelt begins to... Well, they should have been. They should have been. But Roosevelt begins this change that uh, is transformative. And not just does he begin to invite blacks into the Democratic Party and do concrete things for them, although guardedly and in a very measured, careful way, so as not to break his coalition. But he brings in new immigrants so that this is the point at which... Jewish voters, Irish, Irish American voters to a great extent, voters from Southern and Eastern Europe, Central Europe, begin to affiliate with the Democratic Party, and for many of them, begin to vote at all, particularly women. Women from Southern, Central, or Eastern Europe begin to vote for the first time. Um, in 1936, four years after Roosevelt's first election. And that's where the Roosevelt Coalition emerges. It emerges out of that constellation of ethnic and racial groups that Roosevelt begins to accumulate. Uh, yeah, Alf, Alf Landon ran a very America first kind of campaign. All the frontier pageantry that he had as his nomination ceremony, way up in the polls, he thought, you know, this is just restoring the rightful supremacy of you know the old guard protestantism white folks it was you know uh, i just think fdr was such a clever campaigner because he let him throw punch after punch after punch and then somewhere around labor day he started firing back right. in the meantime they'd gotten so so extreme that they had had staked themselves out these positions that were just absurd <laughs> So he had so much ammunition to use against him. And it was all timing. It was that, that uh, like Muhammad Ali, that rope of dope. That's right. You get them to, to wear themselves out and uh, expose their weaknesses. And then right there in the 15th round or whatever, you just come out with a flurry and knock, knock their socks off. It was <laughs> great. Uh, we haven't seen the like since. No, we haven't. That is so rare. We've had campaigner like Kim. We've had three great presidents beginning with Washington through Lincoln to FDR. Historians agree on those three. Others have been near great. Um, but uh, greatness in a presidency involves a whole compendium of qualities. 
one of which is political sagacity. And, you know, of those three, all three were superb, even brilliant politicians. Certainly FDR and Lincoln were brilliant uh, politicians. And uh, I'm, I'm in my own research now, I'm following Roosevelt again, and it's just fun to watch him maneuver. Uh, and he loved it. He loved the game. Oh, yeah. He's a, the original happy warrior. He was indeed. He was indeed. Yeah, I think the thing that psychologically with him having polio that I've seen uh, written about is that he just could not stand the feeling of being boxed in. Like he wanted to have every option open and that gave him great flexibility and resiliency. And it also made him indecisive and pitting groups against each other. And, you know, there was a side that wasn't as great, um, you know, that, that sort of indecisiveness forced people to uh, figure things out for themselves, make deals, uh, you know, delegate and so forth. But there's, what's that great story about right after the inauguration, the labor leaders came in and said, you know, we got you elected. Here's what we expect. Here's X, Y, and Z. And FDR said, well, I, I agree with you. I want to do it. And then they get up to go and he goes, but you got to go out there and make me do it. Your job isn't done. Your job just started. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story because he was going to, he was going to co-opt um, the positions of the far left that made sense in the context of the 1930s, sanitize them. Um, moderate them and put them into law, such as Social Security. At the same time, uh, he was going to have to have justification for, for example, the transformative labor legislation of the New Deal era, but he had to have pressure coming on him and on Congress from the outside to compel everybody to realize we've got to do this. And uh, that was part of the genius. That he would help create an Arab inevitability he put pressure on himself like, this is just yeah huh. that yeah he didn't you know you weren't done okay you got your guy elected <laughs> um, you're not done yet you've still got and work they to were do. shocked by, by that <laughs> yeah so um you were talking to me earlier about the civilian conservation corps speaking of uh, roosevelt and i know that you're very closely uh, that you love Yosemite, that you spend a lot of time there. You have a place there. It's your your happy place. And you look at our, uh, this campgrounds that have been built up. And can you talk about that? The Civilian Conservation Corps and what what a brilliant project, what a br brilliant program that was. Surely, surely there are two places that are, uh, you know, <clears throat> the, the left. And right oracles or ventricles of our hearts, Kathy's and mine. One is Ojai. And this is where we live, but we love to visit Yosemite. Uh, so they're bookends for us. Um, the heavier bookend is Ojai. The other bookend is Yosemite. And we met up there. We, as, as kids, our parents took us camping up there. So I recall Yosemite uh, very clearly and indelibly from the 1940s on. Um, as does Kathy. And uh, we came in on the heels of the New Deal's transformation of the park. 
And recently I realized that really there's been virtually nothing done about that and very little is known about it. So with COVID time on my hands, I've been delving into what I think is, is to me anyway, a fascinating story, but certainly an untold story about how the New Deal transformed Yosemite National Park. And it gets, it gets to FDR, who visited the park in 1938. Um, it gets to Eleanor, who visited the park twice and went on a horsepacking trip into the backcountry with ranger guides uh, right at the outset of the New Deal in 1934 um, and met up with CCC young men and then came back in 1940 and met up with other CCC young men. And what that suggests is that the Civilian Conservation Corps was a, a very, very close part, uh, emotionally close part uh, of the New Deal for both of them. Civilian Conservation Corps was Roosevelt's idea. He tried out a predecessor when he was governor of New York. And the idea was to take young men <clears throat> and put them out in the woods to clean up and restore America's nation's for America's national forests and national parks. That was that was where this idea began. Uh, there had been a tremendous amount of, of adverse logging, a lot of debris left. There were uh, new diseases spreading into the national parks and national forests, ironically, ironically from Asia by way of Europe. And if this sounds familiar, the COVID of the 1930s was called blister rust, which uh, affected every white pine stand in the United States, practically. Oh, man. Well, I grew up a little too too late for the, the chestnut blights, but my father remembered that very well. And even then, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, could not grow chestnuts. And then the 60s, that was Dutch elm yes. disease. Yes. And so it seems like there's always some threat like our ecological systems get stressed and you can make a direct link to covid because that's a zoonotic transmission and that is you know uh made the made the jump who knows what other dire things are out there as well but when when it attacks you know not just you know the economy of of the timber industry and construction industry but just the outdoors the like the bark beetles and everything else that we get dealing with drought and global warming change in climate patterns and it's there's a, always i mean it's a mess what is uh, i just don't know just the the diseases and the pandemics and the not just attacking the humans, but the ecological organism, our, the health of our forests and and so forth. Because when I was in Kern back in the 90s, it was the bark beetle. And I think the bark beetle is still a threat. But when it gets dry, the bark beetles do so much more damage to the in drought to the to the you know the trees that they they weaken them and kill them. That's right. And it's like, yeah. They were fighting that. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Brett. No, no. I was I was just trying to bring it back to uh, FDR and Eleanor and the CCC. Well, the core was uh, was for young men. Um, 
age 18, later the age was lowered to 17, um, 25. And for World War I veterans, there was a group of World War I veterans who were grandfathered in. They'd have been in their 40s. And they also served as a very small minority of the CCC. And yeah, like the bonus that's right. army. That's exactly why these World War I vets were brought into the CCC. Um, a lot of starving young men. I'm, I'm working with uh, memoirs, uh, and in the case of one of these uh, CCC boys, with the man himself, he's approaching 100 now. Uh, but I'm working with memoirs, families of CCC veterans. When they went to the CCC, many of them were literally starving. Um, CCC was run by the army, and by the time it was over in 1942, over 3 million, mostly young men, had passed through the Civilian Conservation Corps. And when they look back on it, so many of them think it was a or even the high point of their lives. It was hard work. They're fighting bark beetle, as you mentioned. They're fighting blister rust. They're fighting things that science is trying to figure out on the fly, just as we are with COVID now. Um, with these, these tree diseases that threaten the entire forest stands of the United States are not understood. And so they're making it up as they go, just as we are right now. But along with fighting those diseases, uh, the CCC is building things. Uh, permanent structures, uh, such as the Ostrander Ski Hut, uh, such as uh, the Visitor Center in Tuolumne Meadows. And- uh, uh, Visitor Center at, uh, at uh, Yellowstone and yep. the Old Faithful, yeah. right? And, I mean, some of the beautiful places that, that we associate with our national parks. No, the whole Tuolumne campground and, and the buildings, the structures the court built are now historic landmarks. They're, on the National Registry of Historic Places, you can't touch them. And these are restrooms I'd trod in and out of several times a day as a kid. And I thought when I was, you know, six, seven years old, these are really cool buildings. But I, I had yeah. no idea how, how, um, how extraordinary they were. Everything was very carefully designed to fit the woods. Also, the New Deal completed the, uh, the highway system in Yosemite all but one final stretch of 21 miles uh, during the 1930s. So there are huge road crews up there. The final question becomes, at what point do we start to worry about going too far? Because every improvement, every new road, every new campground brings in additional throngs of people. But the Yosemite that we know today is a creation of the 1930s and primarily of the Civilian Conservation Corps and these young men. Uh, the final point I would make, the CCC was originally set up to save young men. Women were uh, invited into other New Deal programs, but not that. When it was run by the Army, it wasn't military, but it was, let's say, a uh, somewhere between the military and a Boy Scout troop. It, it was, you know. Yeah, that's a good good way to to. Phrase it. And the other idea was to save the, yeah. save the forest. And the final idea that they came on by 1934 was let's educate these young men. Because the average CCC man had a ninth grade education, was a high school dropout, and a th about 3% were completely illiterate. So there was a huge educational program that took place from 34 to 42 to get these young men job ready and, uh, and eventually bring them toward college. 
that's just amazing. You think about making that kind of an investment in the social infrastructure in America. We don't think that way anymore. We don't think big like that. You know, Brett, you make a remarkable point. They thought on the macro scale about everything. Um, everything was subject to consideration and to improvement. And some of the improvements may not be improvements by our standards today, but they were improvements in the context of the time, and there was a tremendous amount of optimism. For example, one improvement was to bring people into their own national parks. They were the people's parks. Open them up so people can get into them and enjoy them. It was a very democratic spirit. Today, uh, we're much more pinched in our passions, shall I say. I like that phrase, pinched in our passions. Yeah, I think when we write the history of this age, that would be as good a title as any I can imagine. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're talking about the sense of adventure and camaraderie that those CCC boys had. It reminds me of, I think it was that famous essay from William James where he coined the phrase, you know, the moral equivalent yes. of war, you know, recognizing that war created these, this, you know, sense of togetherness and unity and, you know, tribe. I don't know if you ever read that Sebastian Younger I, Witt's book, uh, Tribe. Or tribes, I have read tribe. it. Yes, I have. He, he, oh, my goodness. I love that book. He, he goes deep into that. I was in the military. I was never initiated or anything, but that, you know, there's people that I served with 40 years ago or whatever it was that they could call me up today. I drop everything to go help them. <clears throat> and I think that's missing for a lot of people in our culture and to do it in a wholesome way, like the civilian conservation Corps. Was you genius. Know, I love your word wholesome. Um, I'm a great believer in national service. I think the CCC makes makes the case for national service for men and women, um, maybe voluntary, maybe expected. I think we need to sort that out. But some form of it does bind the nation. We'd be better off if we had had it the last decades uh, of our history. The, the CCC's nickname was the Forest Army, Brett, the Forest Army. Um, yeah. And that was the spirit with which they took it on. They weren't required to salute. Um, you know, they weren't required uh, to, to learn the manual of arms. In fact, uh, the National Rifle Association offered to train every CCC recruit in the use of firearms, and the Army turned it down. Um, they didn't want this to even appear militarized. But uh, yeah. the spirit was one of, you know, men were organized in companies. They went, they ate in messes. They uh, used latrines. The whole lingo was military. And the spirit of it is captured by their motto, uh, we can take it. And a whole lot of those men proved they could take it in World War II. Um, this, this CCC veteran that I'm in touch with and have been interviewing uh, had a stint after the CCC working on a pipeline in the Dakotas. And the next thing, he was flying 35 missions in B-17s as a pilot. And that prepared him for the rigors of combat just and the unit cohesion 
yeah. all those uh, things. Yeah, my dad was a flew B seventeens, not as a pilot. He was a bombardier, but the Liberators, uh, you know, were that was a workhorse, workhorse plane. And then uh, what was the? Well, he was in the Pacific, not in not in Europe, but really the times. You know, it's you know comes the hour, comes the men, and. That was, uh, you know, so perilous a time. But I think we think of the Depression as having weakened us and made us more vulnerable to fascism, uh, you know, the economic anxiety, the inequality, all those dire things. But I also think it gave people a common experience and, you know, a sense of, of you know, patriotism and pride. And that can-do spirit. You know, you look at like the Golden Gate Bridge, for example, was built under time and under budget. Imagine that. Yeah, imagine imagine that phrase, good enough for government work. (laughs) That meant that was, that phrase has completely flipped around. Now people use it ironically. But at one point, that was a true statement that, you know... Golden Gate Bridge, Hoover Dam, the CCC. All that's those fascinating. Projects. The point that you just made, um, because one of the one of the things that particularly the Public Works Administration of the New Deal did, um, and then the Truman Committee of the Senate overseeing war contracts during World War II was to make sure that every contract was filled at budget or if it was cost plus without running way over uh, and gulling the taxpayers. And they were really methodical about this. They studied budgets and stayed on budget. Uh, Harold Dickies, who was the interior department head under Roosevelt and Truman, read every line of every contract. Well, and, you know, he was considered way too slow and way too stodgy. He happened to be a Republican, by the way. But he wanted to make sure that the taxpayers got full value for every dime spent. And that was surely true in Yosemite. Uh, The Public Works Administration projects in Yosemite uh, are intact, functioning 80, 85 years later. And they came in on or under budget. It's just extraordinary. Different Different time, time. Different set of values and point of view. But it's not as though we can't revive it. I think this this is well. Hopefully, it doesn't take a major crisis, a global depression, and the rise of fascist dictators, which I see happening right now, by the way, in Hungary and Turkey and in Brazil and and even to some extent here. I hope it doesn't get to that sort of tipping point where we have to muster all our resources for some big foe whether metaphorically or actual, I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope we can figure out not, to solve our problems. I certainly couldn't agree with you more. Uh, that's what Americans have traditionally responded best to, though, is overwhelming crises. And then we then we rise to those occasions. You got an echo of it with 9-11. Yeah, I think so. I remember that sensation of solidarity. But then it takes a leader to lead. Uh, we've been extraordinary, extraordinarily fortunate 
to have had a Lincoln for the Civil War, to have had an FDR for both the Great Depression and World War II, to have had race aside, a Wilson for World War I, and a Theodore Roosevelt for the period before Wilson, uh, the country's first great presidential environmentalist. Yeah. We've been very lucky. Now, the, I hope our yeah. luck holds yeah. out. Yeah, I'm not uh, ready to give up on America yet. I'm not either. And speaking of which, let's. Uh, yeah, we've been been jibber jabbering for a while. I was thinking we get back to Ojai and what uh, you know this situation is like here, and how that uh, is mirrored um, the current crisis. I mean, our economy is driven by tourism, and that really, really took a hammering. And if you go through the arcade, you'll see a lot of turnover and, you know, part of that, why people come here, why they support this town, you know, creating the social infrastructure with the service clubs and projects and, you know, the women's fund and Libby bowl and the music festival and the tennis tournament and all these things that are just such a part of the landscape. If, you know, we're not, protecting but also perpetuating it can it can go go south i don't know we've been through some hard times in ohio before you hear people talk about the mid to late 60s early 70s as a really really tough time ohio was really looking dog-eared and worn and you know it took some some leadership to steer us away from that and you know Johnny Johnston; he was on the scene then. Uh, you know Patricia Weinberger, great example of somebody who imported that sort of progressive ideals of, you know, rolling up your sleeves and and protecting what you've got and making coalitions with people you ordinarily wouldn't associate with or, you know, disagree with on the, everything else. But this one thing, whether it was the landfill or you know, the freeway crisscrossing town back then, not just, you know, the over from the 101 to the five through Ojai and Taft, but there was another Caltrans plan to go right through the middle of town over to Santa Paula to hook <laughs> it up to the 126 right. and the five. So we were literally in the crosshairs. <laughs> I mean, we would have been crosshairs had they gotten through that plan. We wouldn't recognize Ohio now. It would be, it would be uh, Woodland Hills or Tarzana or. I wouldn't be here. Places. We wouldn't be here. I know. Um, there would be no reason to be here if yeah. we had freeways and sprawl here. We'd be. We might be in another state. Or you, uh, just outside of Might well, Yosemite, yeah, but but we wouldn't be in Ojai. Um, this this valley has been dear to my family going back to the 1920s. My grandparents uh, were walnut growers in the San Fernando Valley, and they would come up here with my mother, who was a teenager, for picnics. So um, you know, it runs deep in our blood. But to have had it destroyed by freeways would have ended that. Yeah, and we're still facing these threats. I mean, those uranium deposits on the other side of Lake Casitas, 
that could become some kind of a strategic reserve asset in which, you know, they got a, there's a lot of chicanery that can go on to create these kind of projects. Lifting the moratorium on oil exploration and Carrizo Plain, um, we're we're not out of the woods. You know, it's, it was that means. realization. We're not, and it was that realization that led to the formation of the defense fund eleven years ago. Um, the fact that that we were going through, and you and I were engaged in this and, and talked about this good deal, the fight over gravel haulage through the Ohio Valley. Um, and it, from from mines just barely on this side of the county line, and then on the other side of the county line um, to the north, and it looked as though we could be overrun by up to 800 gravel truck trips per day down Highway 33. Yeah, rumbling right past right. the public school. And uh, it was at that point that a number of us who were engaged in that uh, began to scratch our heads and ask, "Wait a minute, haven't we been through this before?" And when you look at it, we've been through it before for 50 or 60 years. Uh, about every decade, uh, we face a couple of crises. That's about the average, two per decade. Yeah, I know. We've talked about that before. It is almost like clockwork. It's like this: these perils, these existential perils that I mean, retin high so, so regularly. Yeah, it's, it's very frustrating because you think uranium is settled. By the beginning of the 1980s, a, a group called Stop Uranium now fought a battle. There was a, a bill passed in Congress to halt uranium, prospect of uranium mining here, and now it's back again. But can you imagine Lake Acetas as it was planned in the 60s with a city of 25 to 35,000 people on it? You go up north Santa. And even as recently yeah, as the 90s close. with that uh, big golf I mean, course development. And, and you can go up and 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 look at the part of the grid the street grid is laid out and the signs are there from 50 years ago and you can see them on north santa Ana road that was a narrow a narrow miss and the same thing with uranium mining a few years later can you imagine lake Acetas with both a uranium mine and a city <laughs> i mean it's just absurd so oh my god and the, and the yeah, drinking water for 150,000 so people. I don't think we should even talk about that is, that is drinking water. But the, the, defense, the defense fund is here in part. Oh, God. Best case scenario to discourage that kind of overreach. But if it prevails or attempts to prevail, also to contest it. And with a million-dollar fund, it draws attention. That's right. It's a deterrent. I think that was the way you framed That's it to right. me when you first started having those discussions. Just knowing that there's a million dollar <clears throat> legal fund to oppose, challenge, restrict your projects, are uh, any developer's going to think twice about that? Yes. You remember Adams Canyon uh, just down over the hill, Santa Paula? That was, a, that was an example of some, that was before the defense fund one of the developers came to a chamber of commerce meeting when i first got here i was on the board and he was just like wait a minute you're a chamber of commerce you're supposed to support business and growth and the president at that time was todd begulin i didn't even really know what his what his view was but he said it so eloquently which i'm never going to remember 
And he said something about, well, we're not here to be for any and all projects. We're here to be for yes. ones that suit our community. And I w- wish I could say it the way he said it. it was real. It was like, whoa, uh, you know, I expect business people to be supportive of business projects. And, and they are, but not the ones that are going to, because our asset here in Ojai is this astonishing natural beauty. And anything that threatens so that well threatens you our know, I economy. Think that, uh, one of the people who also captured this well, uh, who was both historically one of my favorites in the history of Ojai, but also a personal favorite, was the late James Lobel, who was on the city council for 25 years and was mayor for five five terms, and worked with Johnny Johnston uh, to block freeways 50 years ago when Johnny was city manager and Jim was mayor. But but Jim's philosophy was we're not going to stop all development, but we're going to filter and screen for that kind of development that suits this place so that we protect and preserve it because it is unique and it's irreplaceable, as he put it. Irreplaceable, exactly. Yeah, so um, I guess that we could wrap up. Is there anything else you wanted to, to say? Good. Anything other? Have we talked ourselves out? Well, I'm going to have you back on and, and, and maybe after the election sort of give us a, a dissection, do a special episode. Um, but one of the things I like about this podcast is it doesn't really matter who I have on as a guest. They all, they all get a pretty good number of listens. And I realize it's just because of, it's Ojai. People are fascinated by Ojai. So now that I have an audience, I can sort of bring them to the topics that I think they should, or that we think they should be paying attention to. And uh, it's really been, been wonderful to be able to get somebody like you on the line and have a a deep dive discussion, which would have been difficult, you know, with pandemic, especially to get together for a cup of coffee. But I want it to be like that. I want it to be like, here we are, a couple friends having a conversation and uh, get it out there to people. And it's a very intimate medium and you're getting, uh, you know, people really well, Brad, I, I, first of all, engaged. I'm honored by your invitation to uh, join in this conversation today. My warmest greetings to all your listeners. And speaking of, speaking of, uh, <laughs> well, most of them, you don't know. Some of them, you don't, you don't right. they don't deserve it. No, um, it's all great. <laughs> There's a few hate listeners out there. They're, they're listening because they, they hate you or they hate me or they hate Ohio. I don't know. Place and what it, what it stands for. <laughs> all of them. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the format because I'm just looking at my watch. We've, We've been talking for quite a while, and it's been so free form and engaging uh, for me, anyway, that uh, time simply disappeared. I don't know where it went. Thank you. All Thanks right, again. We'll uh, see you around the campus. Bye. Just thinking out loud, as the podcast audience continues to grow, I'm starting to feel some responsibility to create more structure in the episodes, to ask more probing questions, and to keep my responsibility to the audience in the front of my mind at all times. Then I remind myself I will do no such thing. This whole exercise is a chance for me to talk with people who interest me on topics that interest me. 
This loose approach is if you are listening in on two people getting to know each other better, though not without its flaws, is authentic. The only promise I make to the audience is that I will stay true to myself. That's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. And another shout out to our producer, Dylan Petrucci of Old School Beats. We'll keep an ear out for you.